Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you out there listening from places like Bloomfield, New Jersey, Barrie, Ontario, Canada, Greenwood, Indiana, Bowbridge, Louisiana, Wellington, New Zealand, Lisbon, Portugal, one of my favorite cities, and Limerick, Ireland. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to follow the podcast, click that five-star rating, and be sure to leave me a review. Okay, well, I've got to warn you, today's episode is going to be dense, but there's no way to tell you this story without going on a deep dive, because we're going to look at the development of different technologies that we take for granted today, starting literally from the ground up. That's coming up next after this. Today's episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. And if you like scale model cars, they've got a special deal for my listeners. Whether you're looking for race cars or street cars, they've got something you'll like in itty bitty 164th scale all the way up to the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. You can see it all at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. And when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, you'll get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Okay, like I said in the intro, this story starts from the ground up, with roads. In fact, we've got to go all the way back to our knuckle-dragging days. In the Stone Age, the simple footpath evolved to a wider track as humans began to use beasts of burden to drag heavier and heavier loads behind them. The practice of paving a road combined with the invention of the wheel in Mesopotamia at around 4500 BC allowed greater distances to be covered more quickly. All of the great empires, Persia, Greece, Carthage, dynastic China, they all built impressive road networks, but it was the Romans who became the unrivaled masters of the craft. Their vast empire was connected by a quarter million miles of road, and much of it was publicly funded and owned. Roman road construction would start by digging a ditch, which was then backfilled with layers of sand and small stones or gravel. The layers were compacted and sealed with early concrete, a Roman invention. About a third of the total distance of Roman roads had a final layer of paving stones. They were also smart enough to crown their roads in order to shed the rainfall and they built gutters and footpaths alongside. From Britain to North Africa, this sturdy method allowed Roman legions to march 20 miles a day. Many Roman roads remain in good condition, which is a testament to their design and construction. But eventually, Rome fell. Road building didn't change much until the early 1800s, when a Scottish engineer named Thomas Telford developed his own ideas. Telford used a base of large, heavy stone with smaller stones to fill the voids, topped off by a layer of gravel. At the same time, another Scot, John McAdam, used a similar method, except McAdam believed a heavy stone base was unnecessary as long as the underlying soil was stable and well-drained. So he used crushed stone and gravel bordered by gutters of larger stone. McAdam's approach proved to be cheaper and faster than Telford's, and it was soon adopted in continental Europe, the United States, and Australia. And even though McAdam roads, as they were called, were inherently dusty and they developed ruts in short order, they were also easily repaired. So they became the standard in much of the world. 
In the cities, cobblestone was still the best solution, since it held up to the relentless traffic of pedestrians, horses, and carriages. What it lacked in smoothness, it made up for in durability. But one day in 1887, a small boy was struggling to ride his new tricycle on the bumpy cobblestone streets of Belfast, Ireland. The tricycle's solid rubber tires made it nearly impossible for him to steer, and it was difficult to get going over the bumpy surface. The boy told his father how much trouble he was having, and the man began to think of a way to improve the ride. His name was John Boyd Dunlop. Born in Scotland in 1840, he became a veterinary surgeon and eventually found his way to Ireland. And it was through his surgical practice that Dunlop had gained experience with a versatile new material, latex rubber. Now, latex wasn't really new, it was just new to Europeans. For centuries, native tribes had harvested latex sap from trees in the Amazon basin. By the 1820s, its commercial potential was being explored, primarily by an English inventor, Thomas Hancock. Rubber was elastic, flexible, cushioning, and waterproof, and it was found to be pretty good at erasing pencil marks, hence the name, of course. Investors in England and America anticipated a commercial bonanza for all sorts of products made from what they called Indian rubber. But since latex is a natural material, it decomposes, and it becomes sticky in the summer heat and hardens and cracks in the winter. Many attempts to stabilize latex had failed and that limited its usefulness. That is, until a Boston businessman and self-taught chemist decided he needed to find a way to stabilize it. In the summer of 1834, Nathaniel Hayward was annoyed that the rubber top on his carriage got soft and sticky in the heat. So he bought some raw latex and began to mix it with various chemicals through trial and error until one of his recipes resulted in a fairly durable rubber sheet. So with a sample of his treated rubber in hand, Hayward visited the Eagle Rubber Company of Woburn, Massachusetts, and they hired him to make rubber aprons and buggy tops. And it was there that he subjected some aprons to sulfur fumes, causing a chemical reaction that stabilized the rubber. It was only a surface treatment, but it was better than anything else up to that point. Eventually, Hayward bought the Eagle Rubber Company, then, one day in 1837, a man came to the factory to buy raw latex. He was sickly-looking, with piercing, deep-set eyes and a curious nature. As they chatted, the man began to ask questions about Hayward's rubber aprons. He noticed they weren't sticky, and they smelled faintly of sulfur. The man's name was Charles Goodyear. He'd been a successful Philadelphia hardware dealer, even designing and selling farming implements. In fact, his hardware store was the first in America to sell all American-made goods. But he'd fallen into financial ruin, and he was even sentenced multiple times to debtor's prison. Although he was destitute, Goodyear had become obsessed with engineering a stable rubber compound after learning that a company that made life preservers in New York City was facing bankruptcy because the rubber was rotting within a year of manufacture. In fact, the entire rubber industry was collapsing. All the commercial promise of the material seemed to be evaporating, and it caused a panic among investors. Goodyear's entire focus shifted to solving this problem. For the next few years, 
he bounced around between northeastern cities, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, always chasing meager funding from sympathetic friends and working in his makeshift laboratories. He was absent from his family. His wife and children depended on neighbors for nearly everything. Even when he was with his family, Goodyear could only think about improving rubber. So after he learned about Nathaniel Hayward's treatment of rubber with sulfur, Goodyear convinced him into forming a partnership. Hayward may have been persuaded by Goodyear's greater knowledge of chemistry, or he may have been under the impression that Goodyear had money, which is of course the last thing he had. Back in the lab, Goodyear accidentally discovered another key step. He spilled a solution of rubber, sulfur, and powdered lead on a hot stove. And he found that although some of it had burned around the edges, the part exposed to lower amounts of heat had solidified. In all his experiments from that point forward, he controlled the heating, and the end product eventually turned out to be stable and durable through and through. But Goodyear never did capitalize on his invention. Although he was granted a U.S. patent for his improved rubber, Thomas Hancock claimed the patent in England. You remember him? He was an early rubber speculator in the 1820s, and he had done quite a few experiments on his own. But anyway, Hancock claimed the English patent, and it was likely because he simply copied Goodyear's process after studying samples he'd obtained. And it was Hancock who named this process Vulcanization after the Roman god of fire. And Goodyear's U.S. patent was blatantly infringed on by an opportunistic grifter from New Jersey named Horace Day, triggering a lawsuit in federal court. The newspapers called it the Great Indian Rubber Case. Goodyear was represented by Daniel Webster, the sitting Attorney General of the United States and a legendary trial lawyer who'd argued many times before the Supreme Court. Webster had been hired by a rubber syndicate that saw the promise of Goodyear's advances and they wanted to protect it just as much as he did. Goodyear won the case, but by the mid-1850s, his health was poor, likely due in part to exposure to all those chemicals he'd used in his experiments. Charles Goodyear died in 1860, still deeply in debt. The Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company wasn't founded for almost 40 years after his death, but they used his name as an homage to his work, which made thousands of products possible, not just tires, but true weatherproof clothing, gaskets and oil seals, hoses and drive belts, and medical equipment like rubber gloves and intravenous tubing. And that brings us back to Belfast, Ireland, veterinarian John Dunlop, and the problem of his son's solid rubber tricycle tires. Dunlop knew right away that rubber was the right material, but it needed to be applied to the wheel in a different way. From his medical background, he also knew something about air pressure and the cushioning effect of inflation. So Dunlop took a strip of vulcanized rubber and sewed it into a tube, sealing the seam with rubber cement. Then he slipped the inflated tube over a makeshift wooden wheel and secured it with layers of gauze wrapping and more rubber. Dunlop found that not only did his prototype handle rough surfaces with ease, but it rolled farther and faster than a solid rubber tire. He made improvements in the design until he could mount the pneumatic tires on his son's tricycle. When that worked out, Dunlop contacted a company in Scotland that could commercially produce his invention and the tires were fitted to a full-size bicycle for more testing. In less than a year, he was granted a patent. 
By the way, in the late 1880s, bicycle racing was a new craze, and a rider from Belfast decided to try Dunlop's new tires in competition. Although most of the rest of the field of riders was very skeptical, the superior technology won the race immediately. Not just one race, but many. And that stunned the other riders. Two of them were the sons of a Dublin financier named Harvey Ducross, president of the Irish Cyclists Association. Ducross was the sort of character you can't help but automatically dislike. He was a buttoned-up dandy with a long mustache, successful in business, clearly full of himself, and he even fielded a cycling team he called the Invincibles, which was made up of his sons, all six of them, in uniforms and identical bicycles. I don't think it would be unreasonable to get the impression that the team of boys was just a conceit of the father. Anyway, Ducross went right after Dunlop, and he persuaded him to go into business, and he even managed to get control of the patent. But there was a twist, because within a couple years, Dunlop's patent was revoked, since it was discovered that an inventor named Robert Thompson had patented a similar pneumatic rubber tire 40 years earlier. And even though it had never been a commercially successful product and Thompson was deceased, it meant that the Dunlop tire had limited protection in the marketplace. But Harvey Ducross was shrewd. He pumped up the company's shares, no pun intended, and he sold it off for a tidy profit. And this was all too much for the gentle Scottish veterinarian from Belfast. Less than 10 years after John Dunlop invented the pneumatic tire, he walked away from his invention and any association with the company that carried his name. And the money he earned from the whole affair was pretty modest. It certainly never made him a rich man. Meanwhile, soon after Dunlop's tires had hit the market, two brothers in France who sold hardware were asked by a passing cyclist to repair a flat. Because the tire was glued to the rim, it took hours to complete the process. And Edward and Andre Michelin thought they could improve the design. They came up with a removable tire, and within several years, Michelin grew to become one of France's most successful companies. In 1900, they developed an automobile tire. And in 1946, they invented the radial tire. And since 1894, Michelin has had one of the most recognizable mascots in the world, Bibendum, the Michelin Man. A few months before John Dunlop was awarded his patent for the pneumatic tire, Bertha Benz, the wife of Carl Benz, had taken her famous trip in his patent motor car to prove the reliability of Carl's invention. Her journey was over 60 miles, the furthest that anyone had traveled in a motor carriage up to that time. So you can see how everything's kind of gelling together, right? With all of these developments, the McAdam Road, the pneumatic tire, the Benz patent motor wagon, the fuse had been lit. In the 1890s, it resulted in the explosion of the motorized era. Renault in 1898, Fiat in 1899, Oldsmobile in 1901, Ford in 03, and Rolls-Royce in 04. Just a few among scores of new companies that would emerge seemingly overnight in barns and carriage houses all over the place. But all those cars kicked up lots of dust, and it tore up the road. In 1901, an enterprising fellow named Edgar Hooley noticed that some tar had been spilled on a McAdam road, and it made the surface much more solid and it cut down on the dust. So he started tarring McAdam roads all over England, and that's where we get the term tarmac. 
With good tires and roads, the automobile allowed a freedom of travel that was never before possible. You could even drive through the night, thanks to an invention called the carbide lamp. Calcium carbide is a chemical compound that only occurs naturally in trace amounts, but a way to produce it was invented in 1892. Now, the electric light bulb had been around for 12 years, but automotive electrical systems were still very rudimentary. In fact, even some early electric cars used carbide lamps. Also, oil lamps existed, of course, but they were really for slow-moving, horse-drawn buggies and carriages. And besides, oil lamps flickered, and they didn't produce much light. So here's the amazing thing about calcium carbide. When it's exposed to water, it releases flammable acetylene gas. Electric lighting had not yet been miniaturized either. So carbide lamps were put to use in mining and for bicycles and then motor cars. In fact, they even made whole house carbide lighting systems, which isn't something I'd necessarily want to take a chance with. But anyway, a carbide lamp starts with a container that has two chambers. The lower chamber is where you put some chunks of calcium carbide, and then you fill the upper chamber with water. When you open a thumb valve, water begins to drip on the carbide nuggets, and that immediately generates acetylene, which flows through a small pipe to an orifice inside the lamp. Most lamps had a built-in flint wheel, just like a cigarette lighter, but others were much more like a lantern, and you'd ignite the gas with a match. Eventually, acetylene lamps became so common that you could just buy acetylene gas and store it in a tank on your car or motorcycle, just like buying propane at the gas station. No more generating it as you go. Acetylene burns clean with a bright white flame, and by using a nice bright reflector and a good quality lens, early automobile headlamps were actually capable of putting out quite a bit of light. Lens and reflector technology, by the way, was extremely good by the 1880s. Just think about the power of a lighthouse beacon, and then imagine miniaturizing that technology. In fact, some of the higher quality carbide lamps got so bright that they could dangerously blind oncoming drivers. And the wide range of candle power, beam diameter, and focal length were just some of the factors that prompted early automotive lighting regulations. By the early 1920s, generators and batteries had improved by leaps and bounds, and car makers made the switch to electric lighting. And the carbide lamp became somewhat of a relic, except in the mining industry and in far-flung rural areas of the United States, where electrification was still decades away. But back to the early motor car. Even with all these amazing technological achievements, plenty of people believed the motor car was just a fad. Luckily, the expeditionary spirit of a 31-year-old doctor from Burlington, Vermont, captured the imagination of the world and demonstrated that the automobile wasn't just a plaything. It was the future. In the spring of 1903, Dr. Horatio Nelson Jackson was visiting San Francisco enjoying cocktails and dinner at the private and exclusive University Club. The conversation turned to the idea of driving a motor car across the country. Alexander Winton, the founder of the Winton Automobile Company, had already failed in one of his own cars, and the partygoers all agreed that it was an impossible task. Only a fool would try. And that's when Horatio Nelson Jackson made a $50 bet that he could drive an automobile across the United States. And that bet was the equivalent of $1,500 today. But here's the thing. Jackson didn't even own a car. He had never turned a wrench. Whatever he was drinking the night he made the wager is lost to history. But a bet is a bet. 
So in the next few days, he hired a riding companion named Sewell Crocker, who was a bicycle mechanic. Good enough for those days. And then, ironically, Jackson bought a two-cylinder, 20-horsepower Winton touring car, and he loaded it with all the kit they would need on their journey. Jackson christened the car the Vermont. They blew a tire in the first few miles. It took them days to get out of California. The car had breakdowns, more blown tires, and Jackson lost his glasses, not once but twice. He began to wire ahead for supplies along the route, which would take them across the Oregon Trail, following the railroad and avoiding the worst of the Rocky Mountains. In Caldwell, Idaho, Jackson paid a man $15 for a pit bull, named him Bud, and gave him a pair of goggles to keep the dust out of his eyes. The punishing heat of driving all day in an open car drained their energy. At some point, Horatio Jackson removed his duster coat to cool off. Later, he discovered the coat had blown off of the Vermont, and gone with it was all his money. Jackson's wife Bertha had to wire them more cash to Cheyenne to keep the journey going. But before they got there, the Winton threw a connecting rod in Carbon County, Wyoming, and it was laid up for days until it could be repaired. Another call to Western Union and more money. But once they reached Omaha, they began to encounter paved roads, and suddenly everything got easier. Jackson, Crocker, and Bud bared down, and the Winton kept running east until they reached New York City on the 26th of July, 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes after leaving San Francisco. Along the way, the newspapers had kept their curious readers updated on the crazy young doctor's adventure. So Jackson, Crocker, and Bud were celebrities by the time they arrived in Manhattan. Horatio Nelson Jackson never did collect on his $50 bet. In fact, the whole affair cost him over $8,000, nearly a quarter of a million today. But when you're named after the most daring admiral in the history of the Royal Navy it's hard to back away from a challenge. Jackson donated the Vermont to the Smithsonian Institution, where it's on display today. And thanks to his daring, the automobile was proven to be the future. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave me five stars and a quick review. And if you want to get in touch, go to the website at horsepowerheritage.com, hit the contact button there, and that'll take you where you want to go. You can also read articles and watch videos on the site. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.